Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we look back at 2022 as well as forward to this new year. Dick Beauvais will discuss the scale of the wealth eradicated in the equity market meltdown and in the crypto markets plunge last year. Huge sums of money have evaporated, posing risk to the economy, he says. We look at the government's money printing machine as a tool that may have finally run its course. Matt Van Alstein will talk about Japan's capacity to sustain its economy despite decades of major challenges for the globe's third largest economy. And there's a major global cyclical change now on the way according to Dick Beauvais who will tell us what that means for investors with the United States poised to reap the benefits despite some dismal numbers on the composition of America's labor force. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, a very happy new year. We're on episode 50. I'm sure it's going to be a really interesting year. The past year, we had the inflation coming down. We had interest rates going up. We're going to just watch where that goes. There's going to be job numbers out this week. The PMI numbers, um, minutes from the Fed meeting. At this time of the year, people make all these kind of predictions. Some of them are really weird. Some of them turn out to be spot on. And one of them I saw there was that we're going to head into some kind of a global depression in the coming year. I think that's a little widely off. Yeah, well, I think that's, <laughs> that is a little extreme. Uh, I don't think that uh, this is going to be a very good year for investing in, uh, in most common stocks, but I think there are places to go to make money. But I mean, I think I'd like to just uh, point out uh, one statistic or one set of statistics for uh, 2022, which I think are somewhat frightening. I I don't know how to calculate this, but the press constantly throws this number up, which is that uh, in 2022, the equity markets lost $30 trillion in value. Uh, Now, now that's real money, and that's gone. I mean, it's gone. Uh, If you take a look at the comments that have been made about the crypto market, uh, almost uh, two and a half to three trillion dollars has been lost. And if you take a look at the uh, actual money supply figures produced by the Federal Reserve, the latest ones are unfortunately way behind it for December 5th. But uh, from April to December, uh, the money supply is down almost a trillion dollars. So if we just, you know, take a, you know, an estimate of what occurred in, in 2022, we've lost 
$33 trillion, $33 trillion. Now, I don't know what $33 trillion is, and nobody else knows what it is either, but it, it would appear to be so big a number that it is going to impact where the economy and, and the financial markets are going to go uh, as we look into 2023, and, and it's not particularly good. Uh, on top of that, uh, the Federal Reserve finally produced its third quarter uh, financial statements, uh, which, you know, this is for September 30th, and they come out with it, uh, you know, roughly at Christmas time in December. Uh, but basically, it, it confirms uh, some of the other things that we've been talking about. In other words, we've been arguing that if the Federal Reserve ever marked to market its balance sheet, it would show that there was no equity at the Federal Reserve. Well, in this particular set of financial documents, it does do it. It uh, gives you, uh, they don't call it note four, they call it table four of the uh, financial statements. And in table four, they show what the true value is of the mortgage-backed securities that they hold and the true value of the, um, the treasuries that they hold. And their real book value is negative $1 trillion. So if we're looking to the Federal Reserve to do something to come up with the money to take care of that shortfall of $33 trillion, they don't have any money to do it. And if they're going to keep printing money to do it, then this whole inflation situation is going to last a lot longer than people think. So we're not starting the year on a very strong point. I'm, I'm always interested when you talk about the money supply, Dick, and, and we're going to get into in a moment your latest research, um, which you discussed in a recent Bloomberg BNN TV interview in Canada, out with the old cycle, in with the new we've gone from one market dynamic to a new one and you're going to lay it out with what's happened in the globe and what it means for investments so the money supply we should watch that right i mean it's just quite amazing where, where does all this so all this money has disappeared and we're not nobody knows what the impact's going to be yes in other words you know if you had a margin account at a um, brokerage firm and basically you had borrowed a thousand bucks under that mortgage margin account you know, the value of the stocks that back that margin account went down. And now you owe the brokerage firm a couple of thousand bucks uh, and you don't have any assets to replace the value decline in the stock that went down. We'll take that up to $30 trillion. Or if you want to throw in the cryptocurrencies, take it up to $32 trillion. That money's gone. It's just gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, if that money doesn't exist anymore, where where do you go to find the money to invest in buying uh, new machinery, to buying uh, new houses? Where do you go to push the stock market up? You know, where does the money come from? Well, you go to the Federal Reserve. Well, if you go to the Federal Reserve, you know, and they've got in real terms a $1 trillion deficit in their capital, where do they go? Are they really going to sit down and start printing money like crazy? Or are they going to, you know, shrink that balance sheet back to a level where they actually have a positive capital? Uh, so I, 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 I think that, um, you know, it's, it's very important to focus on what money is and where it is because it's evaporating and you can't have a strong economy and you can't have a growing stock market if money is evaporating. Can I ask just a naive question on this? When, when we see every night the reserve repo of the Fed is seemingly just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day, and 
you know, sometimes I see people talking about how, well, that's the way of, you know, that's what they're doing to compensate for QT is they're funding the banks through this back door or the banks. The other way I see it is the banks see no attractive lending opportunities except to lend it to the Fed through the reverse repo market because they're getting the strongest overnight rate there. Is is the reverse repo market a hidden area of cash that's kind of just off off balance sheet or is it am I totally off base even wondering what reverse repo is? No, no. I mean, I think it's a critical point. It's an extremely important point because it's a couple, it's reaching, it's reaching $3 trillion in terms of the Fed's activity. So you have to go back to say, where, where does the Fed get its money? All right. It, it gets it by printing cash, literally printing the, the, the paper cash that goes out there. And that's currency in circulation. It gets it because uh, the banks deposit their money, their deposits, they redeposit them at the Fed. And it gets it when the Treasury deposits money at the Fed. That's that's the three primary sources of where the Fed gets its money. All right. Most of those sources, uh, if we go back to before 2008, didn't cost the Fed anything, right? You print money, you print cash, you're not paying interest on the cash you printed, you're not giving the Fed, you're not giving the Treasury any cash. And back before 2008, you didn't give the the banks any uh, interest on the money that they deposited with the Fed. All right, so you, you, you were in an ideal situation. If things got tight, you, you had these three sources you could go to. You didn't have to pay interest on the money you got from them. And basically, you, you, you could handle whatever the money supply needs of the economy were. Now, you can't print enough paper. You can't print enough currency to stop what's going on in the broader markets because the currency supply, I think, is $5 trillion, something like that. Anyway, so you can't get those printing presses going, all right? So that's no longer to 2008, the primary source of funding of the Federal Reserve was actually printing that paper. It's not going to be that. You can't use it in the future. All right. The second issue is the banks want the money back. You're not paying them a high enough rate of interest, you know, so that they can take their money out of the bank at will because you've eliminated all the reserve requirements that used to exist with banking system, uh, replacing it with paying them interest on, on their deposits. So, but they're taking their money out. The Treasury is is not running a surplus. It's running a deficit. So where are you going to get the money? Either, you know, you have to do something dramatic in terms of uh, increasing the money supply or you go to the reverse repo market and you start borrowing that money in the open market. Now, you know, the commentators of the Fed constantly say that the Fed is doing the market a favor by taking in uh, and you know these reverse repos because it's giving liquidity to the, the, the broader market, but it needs the Fed needs the money. The Fed needs the money. I mean, the Fed can't do what it wants to do if it doesn't go to the reverse repo market and take the money. And that money you have to pay interest on, and the interest on that money is very volatile. It is a it is a significantly negative uh, point in terms of this whole review of who the Fed is, what they're doing. Their constant borrowing of funds in the in the reverse repo market because they can't get it from cash, they can't get it from bank deposits, they can't get it from the Treasury is not a sign of strength. It is a sign of incredible weakness. So you've got this this entity which has negative real capital 
that needs to go to the short-term money markets to borrow money to do what it wants in the overall financial system, I can't think of a worse situation. I just want to pick up also on on that, Dick, because you said um, the Fed could, in theory, be insolvent if it was um, really given us the, the true results. But like in practice, what does that actually mean anyway? I mean, the economy is still standing. There's no major defaults. There's no catastrophe. Or, you know, well, what would it case, take to trigger that? Yeah, well, it, the, the fact of the matter is, that, you know, if, if your real assets are below your real liabilities, you have no real capital, and that would be one of the many definitions of insolvency, right? For the Fed, you you would argue it doesn't matter because they can still print as much. They don't have to look to other areas to get the money. They can print as much money as they want to cover, you know, whatever the, the, the gap is between your, your assets and liabilities. And, and, and therefore, we've run the system, you know, in, in that situation now for, you know, a couple of years. But at some point, you know, at some point, the economy is not going to keep lending the Fed the money. And when the economy stops lending the Fed the money, and the Fed doesn't have any real capital, the Fed is going to have to print like crazy. And that's going to drive inflation up enormously. And the Fed understands that, and the Fed doesn't want to do that. And therefore, the Fed is probably going to maintain a tight posture and continue to drip down the size of its balance sheet, letting assets run off. You know, as treasuries mature, as mortgage-backed securities mature, they let those assets run off. And that's the real constraint that the economy is facing in 2023 and 2024. It is facing a Fed which has lost a lot of the abilities that it had to stimulate the monetary system or to stimulate the economy, if you want to look at it in that fashion. And therefore, it's 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 just a big risk. It's a big risk, which nobody cares about at this point. And, and let me tell you, I have tried to talk to the Fed about this on multiple occasions. They refuse to answer my phone calls. They refuse to answer the, the written notes that I send them. I mean, they are arrogant, whatever word you want to show after that. But, but they're not dealing with this issue. This issue is huge, and they refuse to talk about it. Uh, can I just comment on one thing? One, one asking the Fed, you know, it's almost like you're Alice in Wonderland asking the wizard to come be out behind the curtain. I mean, it doesn't work if you actually see what's behind the curtain. It, it has to stay behind the curtain. But the other part, you said the Fed's totally out of tools to stimulate the economy. I think you could have put a comma there and said, without generating significant inflation. I mean, they do have tools to stimulate the economy. It's just the price they're going to have to pay is is a high one in my mind. Yeah, well, the price is that they got to print money. And, and, and it, in other words, if, if the banks are not going to give them the money, if they can't, you know, create the paper, and if the uh, Treasury is not going to give them the money because the Treasury is going to run another one of its deficits, then they got to print it. If they print it, you know, we, we saw what happened when they did that in 2020, 2021. They set this, they set the basis of a significant rise in inflation and, and therefore they can't print it. Because if they print the money, all they're doing is raising the cost of a loaf of bread, and that's not getting economic growth. It's getting, you know, a, a movement of, of paper, which is not of, of value uh, against goods, you know, a loaf of bread, which does have value. Well, but, but it is a transfer of value. And what it does when you when you inflate the economy is you 
diminish the value of debt holders. So you're punishing one segment of society, the people that own the debt, it's their asset, by inflating the money that they're getting paid back with, with less valuable money. But it is a tool, tried and true, that has worked, not worked is the wrong word, but on on paper, it eliminates and is able, it's the way that countries and, you know, entire regions of the world can get out of quote unquote debt is they print the money and the debt is no longer prohibitive. That causes inflation. It causes lots of problems, lots of causes lots of imbalances, but it's not, it's not the same as uh, an institution running for profit or uh, operating under gap or not affiliated with the fed or U S treasury has. It's a, it's a privilege that they do have that they can eventually solve their debt problem by printing the money. It just creates other problems. Well, you can do it up to a certain point, right? In other words, once you pass that point, and I don't know exactly what that point is, but once you pass a certain point uh, of inflating the money supply, you may eliminate debt, but you're also eliminating a functioning economy uh, because you, you've you've eliminated the income of the uh, of the uh, if you will holder of cash. Ultimately, the economy grows based not upon the ability to shrink the debt, but it grows based upon the ability to shrink the output of real goods and services. And if you keep printing money at, at the rate that they would have to, given their current situation, uh, you, you're not going to be able to increase output of goods and services, and and you're going to be in real trouble. You know, everybody talks about Weimar Germany, but, uh, you know, there's Zimbabwe, there's uh, Venezuela, there's, uh, you know, all sorts of countries have learned that. And and it's, it's it's just not a good solution. It's a terrible way to solve your economic problems. We see that in Latin America, we see that in Argentina right now. Um, It just creates social chaos and widens inequality in many areas. I think we're still missing overlooking. There's two just... I don't know why you call them elephant in the rooms, but uh, you know the the first one is Japan has been in a situation that America is right now for thirty extra years. They they're they're a generation ahead of us, and so far, and you know this year might be the one, might be the year when 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 you know the the widowmakers trade works, but so far Japan has been able to defy all logic, all sorts of gravity. Any any sort of expectation that what was believed to be unsustainable is in fact unsustainable because they're still a functioning economy, and you know it seems like they're they're starting to move to um, increase or walk away from yield curve control, and that might be the thing that brings them down. But Japan has gone well beyond the limits of what everyone thought was possible in terms of just debt on the balance sheet, not stoking wild inflation or causing the economy to collapse. The second is we we have in the United States reserve currency for the entire world. And it's been that way since basically the end of World War II. And while nothing will last forever and it's possible that someday that stops being true, you have to have a viable alternative. And maybe maybe the viable alternative occurs after the collapse. But generally speaking, history has, has, has a transition period. And right now, you know, as much as I'm a, a fan of Bitcoin, that's not a viable alternative. Returning to gold doesn't feel like a viable alternative. So I, I do think that everything you're saying is absolutely correct. And I think within our closed economy, to the degree that that you know things do start looking like inflation is going to take off and and the Fed's options are limited, it does look dire. On the other hand, there are examples in history where it's not necessarily the case that the only thing, the only way out of this is is disaster. 
Yeah, well, you know, the Japanese example continues to be incredibly challenging uh, because essentially uh, they don't even have inflation at the rate that, uh, you know, most other countries have it. And they, they've been, uh, as you say, creating debt huge amounts for a long period. And the market still wants the debt. In other words, at the bottom, the bottom line is the reason why things have not, you know, gone off the uh, off the charts for Japan is because everybody still wants to buy their debt, and 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 whether that's internally in Japan or whether that's externally, uh, Japan is having no problem in funding itself. Uh, these countries that uh, print money that uh, don't have the ability to fund themselves in the world markets, you know, obviously do do fall in, into terrible difficulty. And I don't understand why people want the Japanese debt. Okay. I don't understand that at all. Uh, and, and I never will, I guess, understand it, but they do. And, and until they stop wanting to, to, to fund Japan, you know, Japan can get away with this. Uh, now your, your second point is that the United States can get away with it also because everybody has to have dollars and there's no alternative to the dollar. Well, <clears throat> what we learned, um, in two particular periods, in 2020, people stopped buying the dollar, right? In other words, foreigners stopped buying it, social security funds stopped buying it, and we printed it like crazy, and we did get this high inflation. Second point is that, you know, we've shut off a good portion of the world economy from the dollar. In other words, the Russians can't use the dollar. You can't use the dollar in 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 Iran. You can't use it in a, num a number of other countries which are you know closely associated with J uh, with Russia and China. Uh, so we are closing off the ability of the United States to print dollars, have other people accept those dollars, and and allowing us to to increase our economy. I think we're losing that capability. I think an alternative is developing, and I think that um, you know we're at risk. Now, I'm not. I don't. I don't. I'm not predicting that we're going to go off the charts here. What I'm saying is that we're going to go into a different type of economy than we've experienced over the last forty years uh, or thirty years, and and that 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 we should be focusing our investments on that new economy and getting out of the old economy. But basically, the constraints that now are in place are bigger than the constraints that we've seen in decades. Well, we're in a very volatile situation. So they picking up on that. We've spoken about the dollars being the reserve currency, but that's all in balance and at risk right in the current geopolitical situation. And we'll get into the new cycle, old cycle in a moment because it gets to the heart of, of what we're saying. But I'm curious, the, the Saudis have in a sense been propping up the US dollar by this de facto arrangement between the US and Saudi that oil must be paid for and is priced in US dollars. But we're seeing some tensions there and we're seeing strained relations between the Saudis and the US that could go either way in the coming years. And that could be a, a hammer blow to the US dollar and as a reserve currency, correct or not correct? Well, well, I mean, Saudi Arabia, you know, is not a major buyer of dollars. I mean, essentially, the two major buyers of dollars in the world are, you know, Japan and China. And Japan has been dumping uh, the treasuries, uh, if you will, and China uh, has stopped buying the treasuries. Uh, so we, we, you, you go into the numbers in greater detail, you see the, the, the source of funding is coming from hedge funds. In other words, the, the, the source of money, uh, if you take a look at uh, the breakdown that the US Treasury puts out, it's, it's, it's a couple of months behind 
the present time, but they put it out every month, a couple of months late. You, you, if you if you go into those numbers, you see that it's the tax havens where the increase in dollar Luxembourg, uh, you know, Cayman Islands, you know, places like Ireland, uh, you know, places like that, where where people can park money uh, that that. They're the ones who are buying treasuries, right? So, uh, you know, if if you cap off them, then then you, you've got a, a real difficulty because you know the, the United States is, is is cutting off country by country from using the dollar. If if they ever do anything to to cut down the hedge funds from you know buying treasuries, then then you know the, the negative scenario starts to develop. But you know, I I, I don't want to try to indicate that we're looking at a cataclysmic situation. I'm I'm trying to indicate that we're looking at an adjustment in the financial system, an adjustment in the free flow of money, and that there will be an adjustment in the operation of the economy as a result of that. You're listening to Audien Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Audien Capital Group. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Audien and Matt is Audien Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Questions and comments, email podcast at audiencap.com. That's podcast at audiencap.com. Com. Let's look at the major global cyclical changes underway in your latest research tech. It's fascinating and you go into a lot of details and you have some new numbers as well. The old cycle was characterized uh, by a consumer-driven economy. Technology stocks you mentioned at one point and you've repeatedly said should be avoided. And then the new cycle, it's natural resources, defense manufacturing stocks should be invested in and in your words you strongly believe that the new cycle developing in the united states economy will be dramatically different than the one that is dying at present and you talked about new product ideas are being developed in america and these products um, are going to be driven by production manufacturing. The world has entered a period in which financial resources are constrained and money printing does not work. We actually saw it there last month talking about spending 1.7. 1.7, I have to repeat it in my own. Trillion. Was it 1.7 trillion or something yeah. at a Congress? Yeah, 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 it's amazing. Like years ago, if you said that, you'd fall off your chair. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling. But to your point, Dick, out with the old, in with the new, and if we could, there's an important, I won't call it a footnote in it, an extensive research on our labor markets, which plays into this and paints a frightening picture for America. But just walk us through the old and in with the new. What, what does it mean for investors? Where are we going? Okay, well, we, I mean, we're in the 50th episode of these podcasts. In, in, in the very first one, uh, we, we started on this, this tack, and it's proving to work out, right? I mean, you know, if, if you put your money in tech stocks last year, you, you lost a lot of money. If you put your money in defense stocks, not only did you not lose money, but you made money. And certainly if you put your money in energy and, and natural resource uh, plays, you made money, you didn't lose money. Manufacturing has not done as well as I would have hoped 
but it it didn't go down as much as the market. The market went down a little bit, a, t- a tad over twenty percent. Techno uh, manufacturing went down seventeen percent. But you know, we'll get to the reason why that's happening, which I think is this term rare rock. You know, risk adjusted return on uh, uh, capital. But I mean, the problems that that I see is that number one, I don't see Russia you know, being hurt by moving into the Ukraine. I think, uh, you know, basically this book, Putin's People, written by a woman named Catherine Belton. I mean, this this woman did a job uh, on research, w- which is is mind-blowing. It's simply mind-blowing uh, how, how excellent, you know, th- this piece of, uh, you know, uh, research or this book is, because she started from uh, the failure of the uh, Soviet Union uh, and the fact that the KGB maintained its unity uh, and the KGB, you know, picked Putin as their man to uh, be the front man for the, the recovery of the, uh, you know, of Russia. And she describes, you know, almost a decade, well, year by year, you know, what they did specifically to do that. And ultimately, what we have today is that Putin is a czar. He, he hates communism. He doesn't want to have anything to do with communism. He loves the history of Russia. He loves the fact that the Tsar owned all of the resources of Russia and, and doled out those resources to those, uh, if you will, people, the boyars, they were called, who would support him. Well, that's exactly what, where Putin is right now. He has gotten control of oil production, of nickel production, of, you know, fertilizer, of just about every major industry, the banks, um, he has control of that. And he has his, that we now call them apparatchiks, who basically are getting doled out chunks of each one of these things. And the, 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 the if you will, the surplus generated uh, from those activities goes into Putin's bank accounts all around the world. And it goes into the bank accounts of these people. And it goes into, you know, changing, you know, well, maintaining control of Russia and now attempting to main con- gain control of other nations around the world, the United States being one of them. So, so, so the point is Russia is, can make a lot of money. These guys can make a lot of money if they pick up Ukraine because Ukraine is a wealthy country with a huge uh, food supply ab- ability. So, you know, Russia may win in Ukraine, may lose in Ukraine, doesn't matter. Putin is not going away. The system that that was put in place is 1,500 years old. That's not going to go away. So Russia now is a a serious contender. China, you know, used to be the Middle Kingdom, right? They, They have a leader who believes strongly that China should be the Middle Kingdom again, and that the, the world should be paying tribute to China because China is the source of, you know, true beliefs and true operations in the way economy should function. Uh, and, and he's a Marxist-Leninist. He's a big believer in Stalin. And, and Putin is trying to bring back the cult of Stalin, you know, in Russia itself. So you, you, have, you have this enormous force where the the people there, I don't know how you want to count them, but they could be as many as, uh, you know, seven to eight times as many people living in the countries that are on that side versus the countries living on this side. So the net effect is you're separating the world economy. As you separate the world economy, you force the United States to take a look at where it's getting its goods, its services, and you're forcing the United States 
basically to start increasing its manufacturing, increasing the production of, of raw materials, and, and you're forcing the United States to dramatically increase uh, its defense expenditures to defend itself as these other monoliths you know, get put in place. That creates a huge change in the U.S. economy. We are no longer going to be able to focus on creating the best, as I keep saying, the best earphones for the Apple device. We now have to focus on creating the best products that we can sell around the world at the best prices and, and the best utility. If we do that, you know, we win and they lose. If we don't do that, they win and we lose. So I believe that we will do it. And, and therefore, I believe there is an opportunity coming out of what is this massive change in the structure of the world economy. Plus, layer on top of that is all we've just talked about in the financial system. We cannot use playing around with money and financial engineering to replace the fact that we've, we've got to produce goods at low cost, which are sold, you know, internationally. That's the solution. The solution we've used for the last couple of decades doesn't work anymore. The, 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 the people that we're up against are not going to fade away, whether they win in Ukraine or lose in Ukraine, they're not going to fade away. And that's leading to this new economy that I'm talking about. I, I completely agree with you on the way the US economy is going to go and probably the reasons behind it. I think where I, and we've discussed this in the past, but happy to repeat because, you know, it's a new year. The, the <laughs> area where we where we seem to disagree is largely, and I, I look at between Russia and and China, comparing them as, as somehow on the same level of any, any standard at all. I, I just don't see it. Um, Russia, as much as it is, you know, a global power militarily, it has global influence, the largest country in the world. It is, to some degree, the best comp to the United States out there in the sense that it it occupies the, the majority of its continent. It um, basically has the power within itself to be a self-sustained economy. It has the ability to feed itself. It has the ability to heat its homes, power its um, power plants, uh, you know, generate coal, generate nuclear power, generate um, clean water. You know, it's 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 a broad economy that, to some degree doesn't necessarily need the outside world to survive. And I think, you know, you 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 saw what happened after they invaded Ukraine. They got cut off from the entire world. And, you know, it doesn't, from the outside, doesn't look like it's really impacting the quality of life internally, aside from all the insane amounts of deaths that he's causing to the families over there by sacrificing them in Ukraine. But as a economy you know the, the lights are still on people are still being fed they still have hospitals they're still going about their daily business you can still go on youtube and twitter and, and see them celebrating christmas like everyone else like they're they're not codependent in the way that china is china is completely codependent on every one of its trading partners when you look at what motivates putin and i agree with you his fascination with Russian history and and his um, admiration for a greater Russia that's certainly a lot bigger than the one he he rules is there. He also has a degree of desperation in terms of population collapse that he has to do something sooner than later because the 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 tide of his internal power is turning to an older population, and if you're going to do something, you got to do it now because he's not going to have more soldiers in the future. He's going to have fewer. Um, the other thing is, is he is 
aspirational, it seems, for himself in a way that um, is not a Chinese characteristic, in my view. And lastly, it, it's historically part of Western Europe to invade your neighbors. It's part of the tradition. It's part of the the zeitgeist that that you grow up with that is not necessarily uh, forbidden. And then you go back and look at China. China imports a majority of their energy. They import a majority of their calories. Um, they export products to get the money to buy those other things. They have a codependent economy. And, and the final thing I'd say on China is they have a long view of history. And the idea that they you know, might be territorially inclined to attack or try to seize Taiwan, while that's, you know, in the terms of speaking of Russia, it sounds like a, a, a comparable... But I feel I'm I'm just convinced that they have a longer view that they can acquire Taiwan or remerge with Taiwan or come to a deal with Taiwan by being patient and by just biding their time and making it you know obvious that it's in Taiwan the Taiwanese best interest. And you go and look at polls of Taiwan, and it's similar to you know when you look at polls of Eastern Ukraine, there is some ambivalence amongst the Taiwanese people. It's not a hundred percent to zero that they want to remain independent. So I, I just don't feel like that those two are comparable. Xi, I think he wants power, and I think he wants to be seen as a great leader within China for his internal political sake. But he doesn't seem to me to ever be having these international ambitions because you look at their UN votes, you look at his speeches about other nations' activities, he by and large sticks to what has been a Chinese view of other international diplomacy as mind your own business. and. Yes, I agree that when he says mind your own business, he's trying to indicate if we go after Taiwan, it's none of your business. But he also recognizes that going after Taiwan could be self-suicide. And I, I, I just don't think that they are comparable. And to the degree that they you know, had that famous meeting before the Winter Olympics, before the Ukraine invasion, where whereas a friendship without boundaries, I just wonder if he bought into the whole hype that apparently Joe Biden bought into, that apparently... Vladimir Putin bought into, which was Kiev would be conquered in three to six days and it would be no big deal. And they'd be welcomed as liberators with, you know, roses and, and, yeah. and parades. So I, I, I'm not entirely sure that they're, that everything is, as what it seems to be between the two countries, because economically they're on totally different grounds, sustainability, they're on totally different grounds, codependency, totally different grounds. And while they do have a common enemy, you know, the, uh, the United States in terms of at least national or international um, leadership, that doesn't necessarily make them fast friends. Well, I, I mean, in a sense, right. Matt, everything you said there is, is, is really interesting. I mean, they're hedging their bets, I guess, in a sense, China. But David Satter recently had a piece in the Wall Street Journal. It was very interesting to spoke to that point. He said, Russia's inability to rid itself of the Soviet legacy is the underlying cause of the current war. And that's what you just brought up there earlier. I mean, it never really made that transition from the old Soviet mentality. It's still there. Um, it wasn't a clean cut. There was just in corruption in the um, Russian system under Putin and then with his you know, predecessor and a lot of oligarchs and, a, and, a, and an economy that wasn't just properly functioning. And I, 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 Putin seems to be perpetuating that whole disaster and hoping he'll win in Ukraine and, and we'll just have to wait and see. Saying that this is the old Soviet 
you know approach is is a misnomer because it isn't it's the old russian approach i mean you know this he putin is not acting you know the way the uh, soviet union did he's acting the way the russian czars have and have done for 1500 years and the the, the problem it, however is you're correct uh it's it's a kleptocracy right in other words w- when you set up a system similar to what russia set up uh you you and, and you skim off all of the profits of that system for for decades you can expand and you can conquer and you can prevail but i think matt it, matt has made that point very correctly you know you can sustain yourself uh when you get beaten away in other words you 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 rise you expand and then all of a sudden you you've stolen so much that your system doesn't work and it collapses and you and you shrink and then you rise and expand again but you never you never get beaten you never get beaten because uh you know there there is so much resources in the country uh and there's such a, a loyalty to the country among its people uh, despite what happens that that you're never going to beat russian uh you you're never going to beat get russian away which which you are likely to see is a collapse of russia you know because you know they're, they're stealing everything uh, the people at the top are just stealing everything right now that they can net net of it is you know russia may you know as they say win or lose in ukraine it may expand a little bit further it may contract a little bit further but we'll beat them because our system is better China I agree is different it is it is much different uh and and it is therefore much more dangerous even though it's much weaker than Russia is from an economic standpoint as as Matt has correctly pointed out Taiwan you know when Chiang Kai-shek uh, you know took his uh, troops across the South China Sea and and conquered Taiwan Taiwanese were not happy about it they were not saying gee we really want to be under this guy Chiang Kai-shek who's this great uh, liberal leader because he was a dictator as bad as any of the ones that we just mentioned uh, and and therefore he subjugated the people of Taiwan and it's just that over you know a uh, 70 year period you know you you start to meld the population and and the anger subsides somewhat uh, but you know i don't i don't see why it would be such a disaster you know if taiwan was taken over by the chinese uh and, and i think there's a real benefit in that uh japan now is is going to become a nuclear power in in, in my view and and it's it, it is going to uh, represent a real threat to north korea and south korea is going to you know forget its hatreds of i mean the koreans and the japanese have fought each other for you know hundreds of years also they're going to forget their hatred of each other uh, against the common en- enemy so again i I I don't think that that either of these countries are building systems that can defeat our system because our system is based upon moving capital where you get the highest return and in 2022 that is exactly what happened capital yeah. moved away from places where the return was not apparent any longer the risk adjusted the risk was higher than previously thought and that money moved to places where the the apparent risk is declining and where the opportunity is greater and and that system works that system cannot be defeated in my view the, their systems can be defeated and what as i say i i don't want to 
focus on a catastrophic opportunity. What I want to focus on is where's that capital going and where do we make money if we follow that capital? And it's going into manufacturing, it's going into defense, it's going into natural resources, and that's where people should be investing their money at the present time. And I think the banks move as long as they don't get too you know, involved or entrapped by the old cycle, and I don't think they have been, uh, they move with the new cycle, and I think banks will benefit from, from it also. I don't see us moving to a disaster. I see us having massive problems which will be solved, and I see them having problems which won't be solved, and therefore I think we win, and I want to play those areas of the market that benefits from us winning. That's what the irony of their kind of war games are, that they're going to lose in the end. And you mentioned, Dick, that from an investment standpoint, uh, your argument is working. The stocks involved in the industry targeted for growth are outperforming those in sectors believed to have topped out. And these trends are likely to become more pronounced in the current year. Yes, I mean, I think that's the point. The point is investors... You know, they may want to pull around with, uh, I bought Bitcoins, right? I mean, they may want to fool around, uh, cryptocurrencies, I should say. They may want to fool around with speculative uh, things. They may want to fool around with, you know, uh, you know these uh, meme stocks. But when you come down to real money, and where is real money going? Real money wants to get a real return. And the real return is going to come from defense, certainly. I mean, that $1.7 trillion bill has a huge amount in it for defense, you know, an, an increase in defense spending. Real money is going to come from manufacturing products that use technology to make them low cost, saleable, you know, globally around the world. Real money is going to go to it, you know, energy, uh, fossil fuels to other natural resources, rare earths, you know, that we need. That's where real money is going. That's where we should be going. And I think, you know, that happened all through 2022. It was moving in the direction we're talking about. It's going to accelerate in 2023 and into 2024. And that's where people should be going with their money. We all know that some of the best products in the globe today were innovated, created in America. And then we did something, call it odd or self-defeating. We exported the manufacturer to countries like China, Southeast Asia. So your argument is that we're going to move more of the actual production of those goods back to the U.S. Yeah, in other words, it, there was a whole series of books written in the 1990s. Uh, and I kept searching for one to put one name in this thing. But I used the country, the, the book Blown to Bits. You know, in Blown to Bits, uh, basically describes the fact that uh, you you have to you have to change the nature of the U.S. economy, and the way they changed the nature of the U.S. economy was not in a positive fashion. What we, we decided was we're smarter than everybody, so we can come up with the best products. We don't have to produce those products. We can let the Southeast Asians produce them, and then they're taking all the capital risk. They're taking all of the cyclical uh, worry where we're not because we just designed the products. We don't build fabs, and we don't have you know all this money in, invested in factories. Uh, and then you know they send the products back to us, and we sell them. So the theory was, you know, create consumer products, create advanced products, sell those products at high margins, but don't invest money in the production of those products. 
that is not going to work anymore because we need to get control of the production of those products. And therefore, and, and by the way, you know, in doing that, we gave too much technology away to our competitors, i.e. China, so that they were able to, you know, leapfrog us. You know, TikTok is not an American product, as every American now knows. Telecommunications, you know, they, they got to 5G before we did. You know, the, the defense, they and the Russians, you know, are ahead of us in, in, in that area. You know, we got to take that back. I, I do want to just point out that as much as we, we spend some time on this podcast kind of bashing the decision, you know, it's probably collectivism of decisions or collective decisions of outsourcing our manufacturing. But there is a good argument as to how that benefits everybody. It, to, to get wealthy as a country, you're supposed to focus on what you do well and outsource that which others do well that you can, you know, buy at a cheaper rate. And part of the decision to outsource, you know, largely to China, but also part of NAFTA and part of these other um, global free trade agreements was the idea that if we exported prosperity and exported capitalism and exported, you know, what we believed, uh, our leaders believed to be the better way of life, that it would open up the world in uh, for democracy and for greater prosperity and greater peace for everybody. In a large degree, it worked. I mean, you go back to the 1970s and you create a list of countries that were communist and countries that were capitalist and countries that were socialist. And it was a long list in each, each category. And you fast forward to 20, I'll call it 2000. And by and large, America was really exporting democracy and capitalism to most of the world. And Bill Clinton, you know, along with the Republicans in Congress, um, thought that, you know, admitting China to the WTO and opening up trade relations with them while it would hurt our manufacturing se segment and you know i i can't I, I watched ross perot live talking about that giant sucking sound when he was talking about nafta of the jobs leaving the country it was eyes wide open that we are going to be making a transition but the trade-off would be hopefully 20 years later a free china that's part of the free world that's part of the global fabric of the country and the lie has been exposed and lie might be the wrong word in the fact that it was maybe just a misjudgment that China somehow accomplished the task of remaining somewhat communist, at least politically, while getting wealthier for their for their people. And then when you get to the point where we're now at a conflict or COVID is happening and and the world is shut down, we recognized, I think for the first time, and I'm sure there's professors and authors out there that predicted this, that we had a fragile supply chain. And that that we basically added leverage to our way of life by creating this fragile supply chain that that has breakpoints throughout and when it breaks you're dependent on potentially your enemy to maintain your standard of living and it's readjusted everyone how we're looking at it. and that's why i completely agree that we have to have and we will have robust manufacturing in america again but the idea that it was just this giant mistake and it was obvious at the time i, I don't share you know the 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 theory uh, uh, that you should produce goods at the place where the cost is lowest, and the theory that you should put money where the return is the highest, you know, has been endemic to economics. You know, from I would assume day one. The problem is that you know, and the pro and, and and the theory that you know, if you if you do those things, you'll spread income, and that will generate democracy and and liberal, uh, if you will, governments. All of that you know, is, is, is sound theory. It did work, you know, for a couple of decades after the Soviet Union fell, but that's not how China became the power it became. It became that power by doing exactly the opposite, by, by stopping, you know, the, the, uh, 
purchase of goods from the rest of the world by you know uh, stealing the uh, technology by uh, you know hoarding the cash that they they got they didn't do what that theory says that they should have done and now they're the second most powerful uh, economy in the world and Japan didn't do it either when they built their economy coming out of World War II so i understand the theory i i believe that the theory is correct if we could put it in place but those people who have not put it in place have really done very well. And now we've got to be one of those people again. So I think we're talking about here about uh, free and fair trade. And we're talking about the law of comparative advantage. It's an old economic maxim that, yeah, these countries, whoever has the advantages in one area, um, you leverage that advantage and then we leverage ours and we'll all prosper. Uh, but it hasn't quite worked out that way. It hasn't been fair trade. And yes, of course, by the way, everybody across the globe, all consumers deserve a chance to prosper and live in liberty. Chinese Russia doesn't matter what part of the globe you're living in. I think you, you mentioned in the labor markets, that's one dismaying factor in, in, in your most recent notes when you're looking about the old cycle and new cycle. And you've dug deep and you came up with some startling numbers, which points out that um, it may be a difficult road if we are to get back into this manufacturing sector and production, because the way we've allocated the resources and the way our labor markets are constructed right now doesn't support that. Like, for example, one of the data points you have is one out of every 12 workers are involved in manufacturing, mining and logging. And one out of every 50 are involved in providing information services. And then one out of every four make use of the revenue provided to fund education, healthcare, and leisure activities. We're spending too much in one area, not enough. In another, it seems, from those numbers. Yeah, in other words, if you look at the allocation of laborers across industries and you ask where are they, where do they have jobs, where are they working, uh, they're not working in natural resources, which would be mining and logging, and, and they're not working in manufacturing. They're working, uh, and, and believe me, I'm a big supporter of education. I believe it's the most important mm, thing I agree too. we can do. But they're working in education. They're working in healthcare. They're working in leisure industries. Uh, they're working in industries that siphon income from the economy as opposed to industries that create income for the economy and they're able to do it because we borrow we predict we print money and we borrow so much to allow them to siphon all this money from the economy if we're going to do what i'm saying we're going to do you know we've got to stop we've got to stop siphoning money to put into sectors which don't create real income. And if we do that, we'll generate the real income, which will allow us to pay for these services, which obviously we need. We need healthcare, we need education, but we've gone way overboard in, in, in the, where, 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 where we're funding, you know, activities which do not generate real income returns. And we've got to get back. We've got to get back to funding those activities. 
And but what are the chances of, the, of that happening in our current Congress and in our current mental state in America? I Zero. don't see it happening very soon. Yeah, yeah the, con- the Congress is the Congress is, is. I mean, I'm not. I can't tell you that I hate the Republicans more than I hate the Democrats, or that I hate the Democrats more than I hate the Republicans. But I can tell you, I hate both of them. So the <laughs> net effect is the net effect is I don't expect the U.S. government to understand or do anything rational. I do expect money to do things rational, and and this gets back to what I call what everybody calls rock, which is money will flow to the areas where the return is highest and the risk is lowest. And that money flow will get that money back to where it needs to get to create real income in this economy. We are not Russia. We are not China. We are a democratic nation. We allow for the free flow of money. And we have ideas that bubble up from the bottom that will allow money to flow to where the ideas are best. And that's why we will win. And that's why we will come out of this, even though it's going to be a tough struggle uh, to get there. I also want to say, I think I totally agree, but I also think our our system of 50 states, you know, each one being able to kind of tweak their economies and tweak their productivities and tweak, you know, what they're doing, it, it allows for best ideas to win because it, as much as it sucks, you can pick up your your family and pick up sell your house and and do what Dick did and move to Florida. Um, I don't know anyone that's doing that, picking up from Florida and moving to California. But I imagine someone out there thinks that's a good idea. And ultimately, we do have a system which, unlike China and unlike say Germany or or Italy, um, allows the best states to the best idea is to rise to the top because different states have different policies because the federal government, as much as they encroach in lots of areas of our lives, still doesn't have all the power in this country. I like that, Matt. I mean, I'm I'm an immigrant to this country, been here quite a while, and I love America. But I mean, I've heard it repeatedly said by people that, yeah, we have a federal system, you know, the principle of subsidiarity where local communities can make those decisions. But the federal government keeps encroaching on that. Some of the rulemaking that it doesn't want the states to do its own thing. It wants to impose laws. And that's the counter argument to that. It is, but it won't work. Oh, I agree. In the long run, it doesn't work. Correct. The fact is, if it won't work, you know, this is the United States. It will not be put in place. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we might be making a trip down to Florida. It sounds. I mean, Dick, come on. You're 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 always the one who, as much as I love you, misquotes. uh, 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 I can't remember his name. The Prime Minister of England during World War Two. Dick Churchill. Churchill. Yeah. Yeah, You always misquote him. Where America always does the right thing after it's exhausted all other opportunities. Yeah, I think that's true. So so eventually it will work. It just might might take some iterations before then. Well, we had some optimistic notes here, some glum notes, some grim notes, but um we had a great conversation and with some market news coming out this week. I think tomorrow the Fed minutes and US jobs data is out. We can look at that next week. And a program note on January the twelfth at eleven AM, um we're going to be back on Geek skeezers and Googleization to talk about money markets and the jobs. And you'll be able to get that on LinkedIn, Facebook, and social media platforms. It's going to be just great. Dick and Matt, have a great and happy new year. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. 
This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.